Interactive Perception with Robohub, the podcast news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the Robohub podcast. Today we'll talk about interactive perception, soft tactile sensors and object manipulation. Dr. Carolyn Mattel, a research scientist now working at the Toyota Research Institute, recently graduated with a PhD from UC Berkeley. During her PhD work, she developed multiple different types of soft tactile sensors that can enhance the manipulation of really challenging objects such as liquids, grains and doughs through interactive perception. Hi, Dr. Mattel. Welcome to Robohub. First of all, would you mind introduce yourself? All right. Uh, so, hello. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm Carolyn Mottel, and I'm a research scientist at the Toyota Research Institute, where I work with a really great group of people on the mobile manipulation team on fun and challenging robotic perception and manipulation problems. I recently graduated from right up the road from UC Berkeley, where I was advised by the wonderful Rujna Baichi, and where for my dissertation, I worked on interactive perception for robotic manipulation of different materials like liquids, grains, and doughs. So what is interactive perception? So in a nutshell, interactive perception is exactly what it sounds like. It's perception that requires physical interaction with the surrounding environment. And whether this is purposeful or not, this interaction is what ultimately changes the state of the environment which then allows the actor, so this could be the robot or a human, to infer something about the environment that otherwise would not have been observed. As humans, you know, we use interactive perception all the time to learn about the world around us. So, in fact, you might be familiar with the work of EJ and JJ Gibson, who studied in depth how humans use physical interaction to obtain more accurate representations of objects. So take as an example, when you're at the grocery store uh, and you're picking out some fruit, you might lightly press an orange as an example to see if it's overripe or, and I don't know if this is scientifically proven, but you might even knock on a watermelon to then listen to the resulting vibrations, which some people tell me allows you to judge whether it's a juicy one or not, right? So yeah. yeah, people use interactive perception all the time to learn about the world. And in robotics, we would like to equip robots with similar perceptual intelligence. Okay, so using interactive perception is to apply like an active action to the object and trying to get the, get the corresponding feedback. And then using this process to better understand the object state. So how does it... How is this helpful for the manipulation task? So when we think of traditional perception for robots, often what comes to mind is pure computer vision, where the robot is essentially this floating head moving around in the world and collecting visual information. And to be clear, the amazing developments in computer vision have enabled robotics as a field uh, to make tremendous advancements. And you see this with the success in areas ranging from automated car navigation all the way to bin picking robots. And these robotic systems are able to capture a rich representation of the state of the world through images alone, often without any interaction. 
But as we all know, robots not only sense, but they also act on the world. And through this interaction, they can observe important physical properties of objects or the environment that would otherwise not be perceived. So for example, circling back to the fruits, staring at an orange or statically weighing a watermelon will not necessarily tell you how ripe it is. But instead, robots can take advantage of the fact that they're not just floating heads in space and use their actuators to prod and press the fruit. And so quoting a review article on interactive perception by Jeanette Bogg, who was on this podcast, and along with many others in this field, they wrote a, a review article on interactive perception that says that this interaction creates a novel sensory signal that would otherwise not be present. So as an example, these signals could be the way the fruit deforms under the applied pressure or the sounds that the watermelon makes when the robot knocks on its rind. And this same review article also provides an additional advantage of interactive perception, which is that the interpretation of the novel signal consequently becomes simpler and more robust. So for example, it's much simpler and more robust to find a correspondence with the measured stiffness of a fruit and its ripeness uh, than simply predicting ripeness from the color of the fruit. Um, the action of pressing the fruit and the resulting signals from that action directly relate to the material property the robot is interested in observing. Whereas when no action is taken, the relationship between the observation and inference might be less causal. So I do believe that interactive perception is fundamental for robots to tackle challenging manipulation tasks, especially for the manipulation of deformable objects or complex materials. Whether the robot is trying to directly infer a physical parameter, like the coefficient of friction, or to learn a dynamics function to represent a deformable object, interacting with the object is what ultimately allows the robot to observe parameters that are relevant to the dynamics of that object, therefore helping the robot attain a more accurate representation or model of the object. This subsequently helps the robot predict the causal effects of different interactions with the object, which then allows the robot to plan a complex manipulation behavior. I'd also like to add that through an interactive perception framework, this gives us an opportunity to take advantage of multimodal active sensing. So aside from vision, other sensory modalities are inherently tied to interaction. Or I should say, many of these non-traditional sensors rely on signals that result from forceful interaction with the environment. So for instance, I think sound is quite underexplored within robotics as a useful type of signal. Sound can cue a robot into what sort of granular surface it's walking on, or it could help a robot confirm a successful assembly task by listening for a click as one part is attached to the other. Yivka um, Sinikov, who you interviewed on RoboHub, uh, used different exploratory procedures and the resulting sound to classify different types of objects in containers. I should also mention that I noticed one of your own papers with Heather Gilbertson, right? Uh, involving modeling the sounds from tool to surface interactions, which are indicative of surface texture properties, right? 
um, the opposite direction. We're trying to model the sound, um, like, and the, here is like you utilize the sound in the in the task. Yeah, it's like a two direction of the research. Yeah, but what's so interesting is what they share is that ultimately the sound is created through interaction, right? Sound is directly related to event-driven activity and it signals changes in the state of the environment, in particular when things make and break contact or, or in other words, when things interact with each other. Other modalities that I found to be quite useful in my own research are force and tactile sensing and like the amount of force or tactile information you obtain from dynamically interacting with an object is so much richer than if you were to just statically hold it in place. And we can get into this a little bit later, but basically designing a new tactile sensor that could be used actively allowed us to target the problem of dome manipulation, which I would consider a pretty challenging manipulation task. So yes, I do believe that interactive perception mm -hmm. fundamentally is a benefit to robots for tackling challenging manipulation tasks. Great. And um, lastly, you mentioned that um, you trying to use um, this interactive perception to, to help with a dough rolling task and uh, your very recent work stretch a soft to resistive elastic tactile hand, um, which is a soft tactile sensor you designed specifically for this type of task. Mm -hmm. You still remember where did you get the first inspiration of designing a soft tactile sensor for the purpose of dough rolling? So I think I would say that in general, in my opinion as a roboticist, um, I like to first find a real world challenge or application I want to tackle, define a problem statement to solidify what I'd like to accomplish and then brainstorm ways to approach that problem. And so this is the usual approach that I like to take. Um, and a lot of my inspiration does come straight from the application space. So for instance, I love to cook. Uh, so I often find myself thinking about liquids and doughs. And even as a person, manipulating these types of materials takes quite a bit of dexterity. Um, and we might not think about it on, on the daily, but even preparing a bowl of cereal requires a fair bit of interactive perception. So a lot of the observations from daily life served as inspiration for my PhD work. On top of that, I thought a lot about the same problems, but from the robot's perspective. Why is this task easy for me to do and difficult for the robot? Where do the current limitations lie in robotics that prevent us from having a robot that can handle all of these different unstructured materials. And every single time I asked that question, I found myself revisiting the limitations within robotic perception and what makes it so challenging. So yeah, I would say that in general, I take a more application forward approach, um, but sometimes you, know, you might design a cool sensor or algorithm for one application and then realize that it could be really useful for another application. So for example, the first tactile sensor I designed was joint work with Ben McEnroe on a project headed by Ron Fearing at Berkeley. And our goal was to design a soft tactile sensor slash actuator that could vary in stiffness. And the application space or 
motivation behind this goal was that soft robots are safe to use in environments um, that have, for instance, humans or delicate objects since they're compliant and can conform to their surrounding environment. However, they're difficult to equip with perception capabilities and can be quite limited in their force output unless they can vary their stiffness. So with that application in mind, we designed a variable stiffness a soft tactile sensor that was pneumatically actuated, which we called soft cell. Um, and what was so fun about soft cell was being able to study the sensing and actuation duality, which was a capability I hadn't seen in many other sensors before. Soft cell could reactively change its own properties in response to what it was sensing in order to exert force on the world. And seeing these capabilities come to life, this made me realize that similar technology could be really useful for dome manipulation, which involves a lot of reactive adjustments based on touch. And that's sort of what inspired the idea of the soft to resistive elastic tactile hand or stretch. So in a way here where the, uh, the, the creation of one sensor inspired me to pursue another application space. Gotcha. Would you introduce like a basic category of your stretch sensor? the soft attack sensor designed for the dough rolling, uh, which classes it belongs to? Yeah, so in a general sense, the soft to resistive elastic tactile hand is a soft tactile sensor. There's a wide variety of soft sensing technology out there, um, and they all have their advantages in particular areas. And as roboticists, part of our job is knowing the trade-offs and figuring out which design makes sense for our particular application. So I can briefly go over maybe some of these types of sensors and how we reach the conclusion mm -hmm. of uh, the design for a stretch. So for instance, so there's a lot of soft sensing technology out there, including one practical solution I've seen is to embed a grid of conductive wires or elastomers into the deformable material, but this then limits the maximum amount of strain the soft material can now undergo, right? Because now that's defined by the more rigid conductive material. So to address this, scientists have been developing really neat solutions like conductive hydrogels. But then if you go down that hard material science route, it might become quite complicated to actually manufacture the sensor and then it wouldn't be so practical to test in a robotic setting. Then there are, like, are few soft tactile sensors you can actually purchase. Like, for instance, the Biotech sensor, which is basically the size of a human finger and is composed of a conductive fluidic layer inside of a rubbery skin. So that saves you the trouble of making your own sensor, but it's also quite expensive. And the raw signals are difficult to interpret unless you take a deep learning approach like Yashnarang et al. from NVIDIA's Seattle Robotics Lab. But soft tactile sensors don't need to be so complicated. They can be as simple as a pressure sensor in a pneumatic actuated finger or a creative way I've seen pressure sensors used in soft robots is from Hannah Stewart's lab at UC Berkeley where they measured suction flow as a form of underwater tactile sensing. And finally, you may have seen these become more popular in recent years, but there are also optically based soft tactile sensors. And what I mean by optically based is that these sensors have a soft interface that interacts with objects or the environment 
and a photodiode or camera is inside the sensor and is used to image the deformations experienced by the soft skin. And from those image deformations, you can infer things like forces, shear, object geometry, and even sometimes if you have a high resolution sensor, you can image the texture of the object. So some examples of this type of sensor include the OptiForce sensor, the gel site from MIT, the soft bubble from Toyota Research, the tack tip from Bristol Robotics Lab, and finally, stretch, soft resistive elastic tactile hand. And what's nice about this sort of design is that it allows us to decouple the soft skin and the sensing mechanism. So the sensing mechanism doesn't impose any constraints on the skin's maximum strain. And at the same time, if the deformations are imaged by a camera, this gives the robot spatially rich tactile information. So yeah, ultimately we chose this design for our own soft tactile sensor since hardware-wise, uh, this sort of design presented a nice balance between complexity and functionality. Your stretch sensor is also under the optical tactile sensor category, optical-based tactile sensor. During this data collection process, what specific technique you are used to, to do the data processing for specifically this type of very new, very different data type? So in general, I tend to lean on the side of using as much knowledge or structure you can derive from physics or known models before diving completely into, let's say, end-to-end -end latent feature space approach. Um, I have to say deep learning has taken off within the vision community in part because computer vision scientists spent a great deal of time studying foundational topics like projective 3D reconstruction, optical flow, how filters work like the Sobel filter for edge detection and SIP features for object recognition. And all of that science and engineering effort laid out a great foundation for all the amazing recent advancements that use deep learning and computer vision. So studying classical computer vision techniques of feature design and filters gives great intuition for interpreting inner layers or designing networks for end-to-end -end learning and also great intuition for evaluating the quality of that data. Now, for these new types of data that we're acquiring with these new sensors, I think similar important work needs to be done and is being done before we can leap into completely end-to-end -end approaches or features. So especially if this data is collected within an interactive perception framework, there's usually a clear causal relationship between the action the robot takes, the signal or data that is observed, and the thing that is being inferred. So why not use existing physical models or physically relevant features to interpret a signal, especially if you know what caused that signal in the first place, right? And that's part of why I believe interactive perception is such a beautiful framework since the robot can actively change the state of an object or the environment to intentionally induce signals that can be physically interpreted. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with using deep learning approaches to interpret these new data types. If you're using it as a tool to learn a complex dynamics model that's still grounded in physics. So I can give an example. I mentioned earlier that Yashraj Narang et al. from NVIDIA worked with the biotax sensor to interpret its raw low-dimensional signals. 
And to do this, they collected a data set of raw biotech signals observed as the robot used the sensor to physically interact with a force sensor. So in addition to this data set, they had a corresponding physics-based 3D finite element model of the biotech, which essentially served as their ground truth. And using a neural net, they were able to map the raw difficult to interpret signals to high density deformation fields. And so I think that's a great example where deep learning is used to help the interpretation of a new data type while still grounding their interpretation in physics. Interesting. Yeah, so since there is a causal relationship between the action and the sensory output in the interactive perception, the, the role of physics is quite, is quite important here. Mm -hmm. It's highly reduced the dependence on the huge amount of data sets, right? Because mm -hmm. um, we know the magic of deep learning usually gets much better when it has more data. Do you think using this interactive perception way is a collection of data more time consuming and more difficult comparing to the traditional like passive perception methods? I think this becomes a real bottleneck only when you actually need a lot of data to train a model like you alluded to. If you're able to interpret sensor signals with a low dimensional physics-based model, then the amount of data that you have shouldn't be a bottleneck. In fact, real data is always sort of the gold standard for learning a model since ultimately you'll be applying the model to real data and you don't want to overfit to any sort of artifacts or weird distributional shift that might be introduced if you, for instance, augment your data by stuff that's, as an example, synthetically generated in simulation. That being said, sometimes you won't have access to a physics-based model that's mature enough or complex enough to interpret the data that you're observing. For instance, in collaboration with NVIDIA's Seattle Robotics Lab, I was studying robotic manipulation of grains and trying to come up with a way to infer their material properties from a single image of a pile of grains. Mm -hmm. Now, the motivation behind this was that by inferring the material properties of grains, which ultimately affect their dynamics, the robot could then predict their behavior to perform more precise manipulation tasks. So for instance, like pouring grains into a bowl. Now you can imagine how painful and messy it would be to collect this yeah. data in real life, right? Because yeah. first of all, you don't have a known model for how these grains will behave. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so pretty painful to collect mm -hmm. in real life. But using NVIDIA's physics simulator and a Bayesian inference framework they called Sim, we could generate a lot of data in simulation to then learn a mapping from granular piles to granular material properties. But of course, the classic challenge with relying on data synthesis or augmentation in simulation, especially with this new data type, right? With this new data that we're collecting from new sensors is the challenge is this simulation to reality gap, which people call the sim to real gap, mm -hmm. where distributions in simulation don't quite match those in real life, partly due to lower complexity representations in simulation, inaccurate physics, and lack of stochastic modeling. So we faced these challenges when, in collaboration again with NVIDIA, I studied the problem of trying to close the sim to real gap 
by adding learned stochastic dynamics to a physics simulator. And another challenge is what if you want to augment data that isn't easily represented in simulation? So for example, we were using sound to measure the stochastic dynamics of a bouncing ball. But because the sounds of a bouncing ball are event-driven, we were able to circumvent the problem of simulating sound. So our sim to real gap was no longer dependent on this drastic difference in data representation. I also have another example. Um, at Toyota Research, in our mobile manipulation group, there's been some fantastic work on learning depth from stereo images. And they call their simulation framework SimNet. And oftentimes when you learn from simulated images, models can overfit to weird texture or non-photorealistic rendering artifacts. So to get really realistic simulation data to match real data, you often have to pay a high price in terms of time, computation, and resources to generate or render that simulated data. However, since the SimNet team was focusing on the problem of perceiving 3D geometry rather than texture, they could get really high performance learning on non-photorealistic textured simulated images, which could be procedurally generated at a much faster rate. So this is another example I like of where the simulation and real data formats are not the same, but clever engineering can make synthetic data just as valuable to learn these models of new data. Mm -hmm. But you also mentioned synthesize the data or augmented data. Sometimes it will also, we have to pay the cost for like the overfitting issues and low fidelity issues like that. And it's not always the best move to, to, to step in. And sometimes we still kind of need to rely on the real data heavily. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Can we talk a little bit like the, the algorithms part? Where did you get the idea and what kind of physical behaviors you're trying to, to mimic or trying to learn in the learning part? Sure. So maybe for this point, I'll refer to my most recent work with the stretch mm -hmm. sensor. So the soft to resistive elastic tactile hand, mm -hmm. where we decided to take a model-based reinforcement learning approach to roll a ball of dough into a specific length. And surely when you think about this problem, it involves highly complex dynamic interactions with a soft elastic sensor and an elastoplastic object. Our data type is also complex as well since it's a high dimensional depth image of the sensor skin. So how do we design an algorithm that can handle such complexity? Well, the model-based reinforcement learning framework was very useful since we wanted the robot to be able to use its knowledge of stiffness to efficiently roll doughs of different hydration levels. So hence, this gives us our model-based part, but we also wanted it to be able to improve or adjust its model as the material properties of the dough changed, hence the reinforcement learning part of the algorithm. And this is necessary since if you've ever worked with dough, it can change quite drastically depending on its hydration levels or how much time it has had to rest. And so while we knew we wanted to use model-based reinforcement learning, we were stuck with the problem that this algorithm scales poorly with increased data complexity. So we ultimately decided to simplify both the state space of the dough and action space of the robot which allowed the robot to 
tractably solve this problem. And since the stretch sensor was capable of measuring a proxy for stiffness using its new data from the camera imaging the deformations of the skin, this estimate of stiffness was essentially used to seed the model of the dough and make the algorithm converge faster to a policy that could efficiently roll out the dough into a specific length. Okay, very interesting. So during this model-based reinforcement learning, so is there any um, specific way you're trying to design your reward function and uh, or you're trying to make your reward function to follow a specific real-life goal? Yeah, so because the overall goal was pretty simple, it was to get the dough into a specific length. It was basically the shape of the dough, which we were able to compress the state space of the dough into just three dimensions, the bounding box of the dough. But you can imagine that a more complicated shape would require a higher dimensional, more expressive state space. But since we were able to compress the state space into such a low dimension, this allowed us to solve the problem a lot more easily. Okay, cool. And the last three, I saw in your personal webpage, you say you work on unconventional sensors. And if we wanted to make those unconventional sensors become conventional and let more researchers and the labs use them in their own research, which part should we allocate more resources and maybe need more attention? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think, practically speaking, at the end of the day, we should allocate more resources for developing easier interfaces and packaging for these new unconventional sensors. Mm -hmm. Like Part of the reason why computer vision is so popular in robotics is that it's easy to interface with a camera. There are so many types of camera sensors available that can be purchased for a reasonable price. Camera drivers are packaged nicely. And... There are a ton of image libraries that help take the load off of image processing. And finally, we live in a world that's inundated with visual data. So for roboticists who are eager to get right to work on fun manipulation problems, the learning curve to plug in a camera and use it for perception is fairly low. In fact, I think it's quite attractive for all those reasons. However, I do believe that if there were more software packages or libraries that were dedicated to interfacing with these new or unconventional sensors on a lower level, this could help considerably in making these sensors seem more appealing to try using within the robotics community. So for example, for one of my projects, I needed to interface with three microphones. And just the leap from two to three microphones required that I buy an audio interface device to be able to stream this data in parallel. And it took quite a bit of engineering effort to find the right hardware and software interface to just to enable my robot to hear. Yeah, totally understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> However, if these unconventional sensors were packaged in a way that was intended for robotic use, it would take away the step function necessary for figuring out how to interface with the sensor, um, allowing researchers to immediately explore how to use them in their own robotics applications. And that's how I imagine 
we can make these unconventional sensors become more conventional in the future. A quick follow-up question is, if we just focus on a specific category under the soft detector sensor, do you think we will have a standardized sensor for this type in the future? If there is a, such a standardized sensor we use, just like cameras, what's the specification you would imagine, you would envision? Well, I imagine, I guess with cameras, you know, there's still a huge diversity in types of cameras. We have depth cameras, we have LiDAR, we have traditional RGB cameras, right? Or we have heat cameras, or thermal cameras, rather. And so I, I could see tactile sensing, for instance, progressing in a similar way, where we will have classes of tactile sensors that will sort of be more popular um, because of a specific application. For instance, you can imagine vibration sensors might be more useful for one application, soft optical tactile sensors. Um, we've been seeing a lot of their use in robotic applications for manipulation. So I think in the future, we'll see classes of these tactile sensors becoming more prominent um, as we see in the classes of cameras that are available now. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. For the camera, these days we still have a variety of different cameras and they have their own strengths for specific tasks. So you, you envision tactile sensors will also like focus on their own um, specific task or specific areas. It's very hard to have like generalized and uh, standard or universal tactile sensors, which can um, handle lots of tasks. So we still need to specify them into the small areas. Yes, I think there still needs to be some work in terms of integration of all this new technology. But at the end of the day, as engineers, we care about trade-offs and um, that'll ultimately lead us to choose what sensor makes the most sense for our application space. Okay, great. Thanks so much for your interesting talk and uh, lots of stories behind your software textile sensor design and also let us know a lot of new knowledge and the perspectives about intact exception. Thank and, you so much uh, for having me. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that's it for today. If you enjoyed this week's episode, check out our previous episodes at robohub.org forward slash podcast or wherever you usually get your podcasts. And if you have feedback, episode ideas, or might be interested in joining the Robohub podcast family, we're always happy to hear from our listeners. Just email our podcast lead at abate.de.mey at robohub.org. Our next episode will air in about two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye.